When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Fantasy, a podcast channel on a New Books Network. This is your host, Gabrielle Martin. Today, I'm talking with Marion Deeds about Come Up and Served Cold, her mystery fantasy novella. It's a clever magical mystery which needs your full attention. Come Up and Served Cold challenges this podcaster to write a review without a spoiler. The novella begins with what appears to be the murder of a young dark-haired woman followed by the departure of a masked person who might be the perpetrator or maybe not. Nothing is what it seems like, except that the pompous, powerful Mr. Earnshaw and his misogynist son, Francis, really are as despicable as they first appear to be, although they do get their comeuppance. Earnshaw, whose nickname is the White King, runs a commission to license magicians. Then Francis leads a group called the Order of St. Michael, which meets up punishment when his father wishes his own hands to stay clean. The White King and Francis have targeted people from the waterfront, such as Violet, a black speakeasy owner, and her brother, a shapeshifter, in their efforts to clean up Seattle and regulate magic. The battle lines are drawn, but what does Dolly White, a no-nonsense caretaker for Mr. Arnshaw's drunken daughter Fiona, have to do with any of this? Corpses on ice, magical jewels, a bespoke suit, and a precious mask will all make their appearances as the sly tale unwinds. Marion asked me to do the reading so that she could hear someone else's voice uh, with her work. And we're going to drop in on that corpse on ice. This is Dolly as she meets a man called Penske and follows him. He unlocked a door, and she followed him in. It was some kind of warehouse. The first room was bare. Penske walked across it to a set of double doors that coasted back when he pushed him. 
cold air rolled out, condensing into a silvery mist as she watched. He disappeared inside. After a moment, she stepped into the mist. It had a familiar smell, ice. Two small jewel-toned lanterns lit the room. At first glance, it seemed as if a woman floated in midair. Her black hair spread around her head like a rayed crown. Her feet pointed, her hands crossed on her chest. A white silk cloth draped her body. Dolly took a breath and came into the room. The woman was not floating. She was frozen in ice so transparent, Dolly could only find the smoothed edges of the block by the glancing of the light. Penska stood at the foot of the block. She understood his wheezing now. An air elemental was breathing him. Air elementals were the most dangerous elementals because they were the most curious about humans. In return for breathing him, knowing him, the creature was keeping the ice frozen. Is this your daughter? My niece, Sophia, he said. My sister's child. Dead five days. Did she drown? He shot her a look of incandescent anger. You take a look. Tell me how she died. She moved up to the edge of the ice block and peered down. The woman seemed 22 or 23, a couple of years older than Fiona. Her skin was pale except for the purple lines marking her neck. Oh, someone strangled her. Yes, she heard the roughness of his breath. Someone strangled her. I'm not a detective, Mr. Penskett. Far from it. I don't need a detective. Need vengeance. Well, I can't adventure. Into the show. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Great. Well, we're going to start off with Dolly, the main character. Uh, we're introduced to Dolly in the first chapter when she visits Mr. Earnshaw to apply for the position of Fiona's companion. Her letter of reference states that she is reliable, punctual, and tidy. It makes Dolly sound very practical. Is she moved by the plight of those that Earnshaw and his son persecute? And are there other aspects to her character that you might bring up now? When we first meet Dolly, we see a very pragmatic young woman, I think, whose mm -hmm. um, decisions are made primarily by calculating risk versus reward. And at the beginning of the book, she doesn't have a lot of sympathy for people in bad situations because she confuses powerlessness with weakness. Um, and I would say that at the early, at the beginning of the book, we're seeing a woman who's very observant but actually lacks empathy or is not using empathy. This is a source of strength for her. It's also a vulnerability as the story progresses and she starts to confront the limit of her own abilities and she finds herself having to rethink whether the kind of go it alone, be practical and, and um, as someone in the book calls her cold-hearted, mm -hmm. is really the best technique. That's so such... I think her desire, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say that is such a great line. She confuses powerlessness <laughs> with weakness. Yes, and her own desire for human connection kind of sneaks up on her and takes her by surprise as the book continues. So, uh, as you said, she gets by on her wits because Dolly has no magic. 
she knows about That's magical funny. potions. But there is a remark a shopkeeper jokingly asks Dolly, did the fairies bless you while you slept? And I think that remark is significant. Can you uh, talk a little more about that? I'd be happy to. I'm, I'm kind of laughing because like many things in this story, that one line does a lot of work. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, it has at least two meanings. It has a larger meaning in the story, and then it has some layers, and it also then has a, a personal meaning for Dolly. Even though we never see them directly in the book, the Fae exist in this world, and they're called the Fair Folk or the Fair Ones in Seattle. And this little bit of banter reminds us of that. It's also an acknowledgement that there are ways to acquire magic if you aren't born with it. And one is to bargain or perhaps in rare circumstances have it bestowed on you with no strings attached. Hmm. If it came from the fair folk, the odds of it having no strings attached are highly unlikely. Mm -hmm. But part of Dolly's, so, so the remark is part of a, just a commentary that Dolly's fairly witty and fairly persuasive. But part of Dolly's backstory is an encounter that she did have with the Fae when she was a child and how that encounter has shaped her. And some of the people in the book recognize that influence, maybe without even realizing that that's what they're recognizing. For instance, later in the book, another character kind of sarcastically says to her, oh, are you afraid you're going to be carried off by the fairies? Mm -hmm. But something is triggering those people to make this connection. And it's a question that actually gives Dolly some problems as the story continues. Mm, yeah, interesting. They're picking up on something without even it being in our consciousness. Yes. Well, uh, shapeshifters are another element of the story in your world. They are revealed, I believe, when someone holds a lapis lazuli near them. So Mr. Earnshaw holds forth on shapeshifters as he is wont to do, to hold forth. <laughs> yes. And he doesn't trust them. He and Francis, his awful son, have a plan to rid Seattle of them completely. So he explains shifters to Dolly at one of their first dinners. What element is related to shifters and how does that explain some of Mr. Earnshaw's prejudice against them. The element that shapeshifters connect to is the earth element. Often you're actually somewhat tied to the, the continent that you were born on or that your family has been born on in terms of what animal shape you might take. It's one of the magical abilities that cannot be bestowed or created artificially with a spell. Uh, you inherit it. You're either born one or you're not. Shapeshifters have a relationship with their animal aspect that is more like a dance than like an order or coercion or a forced march, and both sides of the person have to be honored. Um, honoring things is really not Earnshaw's thing. No. Earnshaw, yeah, he's very interested in things that he can either commodify or control, and he can do neither with shapeshifting unless they are, as you pointed out, externally controlling the shapeshifters through a magic spell or coercion of some kind. The other issue, though, is that Earnshaw's son is working closely with somebody whose primary competitors are a highly successful family of shapeshifters. 
and at least some of Earnshaw's uh, supposed disdain for shifters is connected to a cynical campaign of demonization that's basically being driven by greed and desire to consolidate power. Mm-hmm. We were talking about Earnshaw and how he really likes things that he can commodify and control. He actually earned quite a bit of money by making earshot gems. So tell us a little bit about how those are made. Earnshaw finds a certain type of gemstone that have magical affinities. In the book, I imagined rubies and emeralds because they're very colorful and pretty. Although, honestly, I think technically diamonds would be your better choice. Mm -hmm. But that's what I went with. And he basically matches up two or more stones uh, as similar in weight and cut and color as he can and then prepares them with a spell. And then he captures an air elemental and basically cuts it up into pieces and traps the pieces in the different stones. Air elementals aren't corporeal beings, so it isn't quite as gross as it first sounds, <laughs> but it is still, it's a mutilation, and it leaves the elemental, which is still living in great distress, and they are trapped. But then because the same awareness is in both stones, the stones act like a spy bug or a walkie-talkie. If you're wearing one and you have the paired stone in a room, you can hear what goes on in that room. Um, it is, to put it mildly, a really disrespectful thing to do, and it should tell us a lot about Earnshaw mm-hmm. and, how he, and how he views the magical world. But on the other hand, these things were very useful in World War I, and they're really popular. So it's not just him. The society kind of has to take a look at how they're treating the magical world as well. Yeah, how it's co-opted um, for certain ends. Well, Mr. Earnshaw has a son. We've touched on him briefly. And Francis is described as trouble in a sharp suit. Ironically, I think his motto is semper servo, which means to always protect. That's pretty much the last thing he's doing. Uh, he <laughs> also has a In addition to the medallion of St. Michael, which he loses in a misadventure, he also wears a red gem which fastens his tie. What powers does that red gem confer on him? Oh, sorry to disappoint. It's just a really expensive tie pin with a a garnet in it. (laughs) Oh, okay. (laughs) He does have a magical ability, though, which is he can temporarily shield himself by hiding. If there's a shadow in the room, he can use it to make himself invisible. So I thought the red gem helped him do that, but I I don't think so. I think that's just an inherited ability because he does have two magical parents. His his deceased mother was also a magician. Mm -hmm. So So we've got the two characters, uh, Earnshaw and his son, They think nothing of enslaving elementals or splitting their essence for magical purposes. On the other side, we have black business owner Violet Solomon, who was once a greengrocer with her common-law husband. So explain to us what a greengrocer is and what Earnshaw has against them. And then we can move on to what Violet thinks of what he's saying. Earnshaw is the chief commissioner of a, a group in Seattle called the Commissioner of Magi, who believe that they are regulating magic and are protecting um, people from misused magic. Um, it's an old argument. It's an argument we hear a lot. And, you know, in many areas we even agree with magic's dangerous. 
Uh, regulation is a way to make it be as consistent as possible, protect people, and make sure that the consumers of magic, people who are buying spells or potions or protection charms, are actually getting what they pay for. Mm-hmm. That can all sound good. However, at this particular time with this particular commission in Seattle, regulation is starting to sound more and more like charge a lot of fees and bring in lots of money for the commission itself, for the commissioners, and then they pass them on to the city. Traditionally, unlicensed magickers tend to be lower income, often people of color or people on the margins in other ways, and this commission is knowingly pushing them out of the legal magic community and trying to monopolize magic within the upper and middle classes. Greengrocer is playing for a specific kind of unlicensed magicker, specifically one who deals in spells and amulets. Um, there is, well, and then you, so, so that's basically, so his stated reason is that um, they can't be trusted, the work can't, you know, can't be guaranteed, and that um, the commission is there to protect them, protect the, the public. That's why Earnshaw says mm-hmm. against them. Semper Servo. That's what he says. I think given his attitude and his classism, that probably is sincere. Yeah, I think so. Um, on some level, he really does feel like he's protecting society against certain elements that he thinks should be excluded. Yeah, and he's just inherently better at magic, in his opinion. Um and so, of course, he should have freedom because he's a magi, but these other people really shouldn't be allowed to practice mm-hmm. what they've inherited. That's not okay. So then we get to Violet. Violet's husband was a licensed legal botanical magician. Um, they were both completely within the law. Pedro got caught up in kind of a perfect storm of corruption. He became the target of the Order of St. Michael's protection racket because of the block their shop was on. Um, And at the same time, the commission arbitrarily decided to require more fees for certain types of magicians and made those fees retroactive with no warning. And Pedro chose not to pay them because he felt rightfully that he had already paid the legal fees. And he thought he was fighting it through legal channels but he wasn't given the opportunity to do that. His death is not an accident. It is completely unjust, and Violet is fully aware that his killers will never face conventional justice because of their societal connections. So part of her decision to open a speakeasy rather than just, we'll all just be an herbalist or I'll just you know, stay quietly in the corner and not make waves, is defiance. Like, okay, you want to make my living illegal? Well, then I'll go into an illegal business, and I'll be the best illegal business in the city, and I will thrive at it. And that's kind of where she's at with her speakeasy. Mm -hmm. So we've got another character, an interesting guy, Gabe. He's an older white tattoo artist. We don't know how old he is, but he's older, and he's blind. He and Violet Solomon's brother, Philippe, are lovers. Since the Solomon family is black, most people assume that Gabe's visit must consist of Violet cooking in her house for his convenience and maybe doing some cleaning. So those assumptions are, of course, wrong. How did your sensitivity readers help you portray people like Violet, Gabe, and Philippe? 
my the sensitivity readers that my editor found for me were brilliant. Um, there are still, I think, areas in the book that could be smoother and certainly some mistakes, and they are all mine. I had Johari Marcel Pools, who read for Philippe and Violet, and Elsa Sunyason read for Gabe. She's, um, she has a Hugo for Best Fan Writer, and I'm actually reading her fantasy novel, The Sword of the White Horse, right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were both just extraordinary. They helped me make the book so much stronger without having to completely tear it down to the foundation and rebuild. Um, one concern that I'd had early, and I think um, Johari really helped me solidify it, Philippe and Violet grew up in St. Augustine, Florida, and in early drafts, I pictured their family as Afro-Latinx. Um, as they developed, it was becoming clear to me historically that this was unlikely because if, they, if their family had come, had been transported to a Caribbean island and then come from there to the U.S., those would have been under French dominion, not Spanish. Mm-hmm. And um, so it seemed clear that they were descended from enslaved people who had been brought to the North American continent. And Johari helped me a lot with just grace notes and small changes to make the characters more authentic. She had a tactful and careful eye on the language. We had a little bit of a back and forth discussion about the word colored, because while colored is a racist in 1929, that was actually the polite term mm-hmm. to use. Right, yeah. And she really helped me fine-tune, because because this is also a book about class, you know, which classes would use color and which characters would use harsher terms, which I do have a couple in there. Um, and it, it wasn't, like I said, it wasn't a massive overhaul, but it just, I think, made these characters much more believable and much more rounded. And Elsa similarly helped me tremendously with Gabe. The biggest stumbling block I had with Gabe was my trying to imagine, if you're blind, how you do a tattoo, one of the most visual media, you know, art. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want it to be, oh, well, he's blind until he's doing a tattoo and then magically he can see because <laughs> then that, yeah, exactly. So, um, yes, yes. So she helped me come up, rethink that and come up with a way that was much more tactile and much more about how he feels the lines of the tattoo in his body. She also pointed out that blind or visually impaired person who uses a cane would not be cavalier about their cane. And that became a very important detail. And it actually becomes a plot point near the end mm-hmm. when Gabe is in a situation and doesn't have his cane and how he feels about that. And I am so grateful to her and so grateful to both of them because they just taught me so much. I think, I not only think I did better, more authentic characters because of their help, I think I'm probably a better writer now because of their help. Great. Yeah, so your editor found those for you. Yeah. That sounds like a good editor. I think she, I think they are, yeah. <laughs> So we were talking about Gabe's blindness. There's actually a story behind that that I think comes with a lesson. Can you enlarge on that a bit? Well, Gabe says to Dolly, I'm a cautionary tale, and that's true. Um, Gabe wanted to be the best tattooist in the world, and he heard a rumor about some tattoo needles that granted that wish, which should have been his first clue to steer clear, (laughs) but no. (laughs) But no. 
So he tracked them down and he bargained for them with the entities that control them. And surprise, surprise, the bargain did not go the way he expected. So it's basically a warning about hubris. But in this book, for me, it's also a reminder that magic is strange and it's powerful and humans never fully control it. So in a way, Gabe, um, I, I think I'm going to kind of veer off the question a little bit here, but don't worry, I'll brilliantly bring it okay, back to the question great. again. Um, I have several characters and several situations that kind of mirror each other in this book. And Gabe is kind of the mirror of Earnshaw. Earnshaw believes he can control anything he puts his will to. And Gabe knows firsthand that humans don't control magic. Or they will never fully control magic. So mm -hmm. that's kind of a, you know, those are two um, ends of the continuum, I guess I would say. See how cleverly I brought it back around? <laughs> you did. <laughs> Gabe, Gabe had to pay, just like uh, yeah. the Fae rarely gives something without strings attached and other magical benefits, I'm sure, are similar. So one of my favorite characters was Fiona, uh, Mr. Earnshaw's other child. Uh, we first meet her. She's a mess, but then she's not so drunk and not so muddled as she seems. How is she different from her brother and father? Um, Fiona really grew on me as a character. Um, and what I will say about Fiona as, as a writer is when I first envisioned the story, she was basically a plot device. Mm -hmm. I hadn't really gone much beyond the stereotype of the rebellious heiress. But I workshopped the first chapter of this at the Mendocino Coast Writers Conference several years ago. And crime novelist David Corbett was the workshop leader. And he said when Fiona makes her entrance into the drawing room in the first chapter when we first see her, he said she brings all this chaotic energy with her. And he said, what's the deal with her? And I had to answer that. So mm -hmm. that got me into thinking. She's an outsider in her own family now because her, by her father and her father and brother diminish her because she has no magic. Her mother's influence when her mother was alive was very helpful and very steadying for her, but right now she feels pretty far from that. Basically, she is indeed smarter than she seems to be at the beginning. She is loyal to her family, even though she's unhappy, which I think is not an uncommon family dynamic to see. And probably... Had things gone differently, she would have been resigned to the arranged marriage that her father has set up, and it would have even, by the standards of her her social stratum, um, been a successful marriage. Mm -hmm. They both would have had secrets, but um, they would have made it work. But her father introduced her to Rob, and she fell in love with him, and then her father sent him away. And she's self-medicating because she has a broken heart, and she's starting that's starting to crack open some other things for her, and she's starting to realize how she's being treated in her family by these two men. And the street drug that she's on, Shimmer Shim, is driving her to be a little more openly defiant when originally I think most of her subversions were small mm -hmm. because she knew she wouldn't um, win a head-to-head -head confrontation with either of these men. And so she's starting to, to spill the family secrets, and she's discontented. And she's now one of my favorite characters, too. So, Well, the novella just gave us kind of a taste of uh, 
Dolly's backstory and of this world. Uh, are you working on further books set in that world, or what are you working on these days? I have a completed draft of a, I call it an indirect sequel. It's set in the same world, but the main characters are Gabe and Philippe, and oh. they have a, a medical adventure. And I'm starting to plot out another story with the Dolly character that will take place in New York, or not New York, excuse me, San Francisco, and a small town north of San Francisco called Petaluma, California, mm -hmm. which had some interesting things going on in the early 30s um, that I think I can make use of. And we'll probably also have some heist elements in it. <laughs> yeah, with Dolly, that's possible because she is a complex character, which will slowly be revealed yes. over the course of the novella for people who haven't read it yet. Well, thanks so much for making time for us today. And uh, how do people keep up with you the best way to find out when you're new releases are and other news about you. Thank you for thanks for asking. You can find me at deedsandwords.com. It's my blog and I'm doing a pretty good job of keeping it up to date. If I'm doing any kind of a promotion or I have a, a book coming out, it'll be on there. Plus my my thoughts about the world such as it is. I'm on Twitter, Marion D underscore D. If you like reading book reviews, I review for fantasyliterature.com, so you can also find my reviews there. Okay, well, thanks for talking with us, and have a good rest of today. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to me today on the New Books Network in Fantasy. I've been talking to Marion Deeds about her clever historical fantasy novella, Come Up and Served Cold. Next month, we'll feature Tanvi Berva's debut YA fantasy novel, Monsters Born and Made. I'm your host, Gabrielle Martin. You can also follow me on Twitter to get updates about new podcasts and more, at Gabrielle Author.